Well, welcome back to church. As we start a new series that will bring us towards Christmas, uh, both in terms of the Bible, but also in terms of our church calendar. Uh, We're going to be looking at the series called The Promises of Christmas, and we're going to look at Jesus' coming, the most important time of the year, most important time of history. But we're going to do it by looking at Jesus' coming, but in God's plan, he used a herald, a, uh, a teaser trailer, if you like, of Jesus coming in the future. And he uses it at the birth, through a man called, the birth of a man called John the Baptist, and also as Jesus begins his ministry, he'll use this same man to proclaim that Jesus is a saviour. Now, before we look at this life and this work of John the Baptist, we're going to go back a little bit further still. We're going to go back to a time before John the Baptist was even born and look at the circumstances around his birth. Why are we going to do that? Well, because we're looking at a part of the Bible called Luke, and Luke is a biography of the life of Jesus and the times around Jesus' life and work. And this is where the the author Luke uh, is writing, and so we'll follow his lead. And we'll see that today, Luke will say several things. The first thing he'll say is that God actually works in human history, in real time, in real space, in real history. And we can investigate it, and it's true. Luke will also say that God works in his own special way, and his own special way is often unlike the way we would work as human beings. And lastly, we'll see that God actually works for the joy of his people as well. So let's look at each of those things in turn. First of all, God works in human history. Come with me to verses 1 through to 4 that Bruce just read to us. It says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. You see, this book was written by a guy called Luke. Now, Luke wasn't in Jesus' inner circle. He wasn't one of the disciples. He was a doctor by trade. But he had a lot of friends who were Jesus' disciples, and he became a Christian and followed Jesus. Now, Luke gathers all this information in order to write an orderly account, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. He wasn't just writing a random history. He was writing an orderly account of Jesus. And he did this in several ways. One, he gathered the other accounts that people had written, including Mark, who was also in the Bible, and he sort of sifted through those. Then he talked to a lot of people, eyewitness accounts, and he put these things together, he sifted through the truth and lies, and he came up with an orderly account which was truthful and faithful to what Jesus actually did and said and taught. He did that. Now, why did he do this? Well, he did this so that Theophilus could know with certainty the things that he had been taught, Now, Theophilus, the name means a lover of God. It could have been a guy. It could have been just a generic term for people who love God. But they would have heard a lot of stuff about Jesus. And so Luke writes people like that, lovers of God, an orderly account so that they can know the truth and they can have certainty in the things that they've been taught. So they can have confidence. You see, what Luke is trying to say is Christianity, Christmas, Jesus, this is a real-life event in human history. It occurred. He did his research. He made sure that what he recorded was true and he passed it on to other people so that we can be certain as well. See, Christianity isn't just a sort of bunch of myths that we just made up for a good excuse to have a holiday. Like, 
Everyone, all the adults just agreed. Oh, yes, you know, let's just make up Santa Claus and we'll put him in shops and we'll go shopping and we'll have parties. It's great. And we won't tell the kids, except, you know, we all know Santa Claus is not real. Um, oh, sorry, Kelman Room. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, you know, all the kids grow up and they all grow up. We, we tell them stories about Christmas being, like Santa being real until, of course, my daughter Renee comes and just shatters all their dreams. Um, listen to two, two weeks ago's sermon to hear the full story. See, it's not like that. It's not a myth that we just made up and all agreed on to have a holiday. And it's not like something that we just agreed to do, like Black Friday. Someone please explain to me why in Australia we have Black Friday still. I mean, it's, it's a sale after the American Thanksgiving. I understand that. I know it's a global, global marketplace. But why we just decide to have massive sales ourselves, no idea. But Christmas isn't that. We just agreed to have a bunch of sales. Christmas, by Luke's account, is actually a real event that we can have confidence in. It really took place. And not just did it really take place, it's not a historical event that we can sort of look back at and say, wow, great, I'll study that for my history exam. It's something that actually it impacts us because Christmas is when God became flesh, became Jesus and walked among us and taught us about himself and says, you know what, I want you to come and follow me, to love me, to worship me, just as much as I loved you and created you and care for you every day. The event of Christmas is a true event and has implications for the way that we live even now. It's not just history, it's not a myth. It has implications. And so for us, we are to to understand Christmas in that light, a real human event. Now, in a room this size and at this time of year, Christmas time, I'm sure there's a whole spectrum of who's in here. Some of us uh, go to church every week uh, and we've been at church for years, decades even. And some of us are sort of coming to church, it's our first time or one of our first times, or maybe this is a bit of a family tradition that we just come to church uh, during Christmas to sort of be a part of the, the, the spirit of Christmas. Uh, and maybe this year you can't come on Christmas Day, so you came a few weeks earlier. And if that's you, welcome to church. Thank you so much for spending Sunday morning with us. It is so good that you're here. And you know what the amazing thing is? This particular part of the Bible is for people like you. See, you obviously know a bit about God, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be at church. You obviously like what you hear about God, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And reading this part of the Bible, Luke, it's designed to give you certainty about the things that you already know. And that's great, isn't it? You can come here, be certain. But let me give you a bit of a challenge this morning, if that's you. As we read the Bible, as we read this part of the Bible, Luke, we'll see that the claims that are being made by Jesus means that he's not just significant and important for December and Christmas. He's actually significant and important for the other 11 months of the year as well. So come, be encouraged for things that you already know, but let me also invite you to come along and learn more about this Jesus. Let me invite you to investigate some more. Come back next week and hear another talk about this part of the Bible. Um, Go home and download it if you're going to be away on holidays. Um, There's a Bible in front of you with Luke in it. you, You can download the Bible from anywhere on the net. Do that, read Luke, or if you really like the paper version and you don't have one for any reason at home, uh, take the one that's right in front of you. It's our gift to you. We'd much rather you have a Bible and read it than for it to sit in this hall for another week collecting dust. Right? So please, just investigate. I invite you to do that. Uh, but for those of us who are regulars at church, we are very confident, aren't we, inside these walls? Yeah, we know Christmas is real. We know Jesus actually lived. We know there's a historical accounts for it and all that sort of stuff. But when we go out during the week... We do get a little bit distracted. We get a little bit scared. We're in the minority out there. 
And sometimes we just don't want to go and tell people what we believe about Christmas, even at this time uh, where everything's about Christmas. And we go out there and we don't want to impose our views on other people. And that's good, right? We don't want to impose our views on other people. But having said that, sometimes we do it because we're not that certain ourselves. Yes, this is true for me and my friends at church, but for those guys who don't believe it, well, maybe it's not true for them. Maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. And if that's how you feel, and certainly sometimes that's how I feel, then reading this part of the Bible reminds us again that this is truth. It's just as true as any other significant event in history. It's just as true as air and water. It is true. And we don't have to be embarrassed about it. We don't have to be ashamed that we believe these things. People like Luke and many others through history have taken time and effort to filter out the falsehoods, to keep the truth in, and write us an orderly account so that we, like Theophilus, can have certainty in the things that we've been taught. And we can go out into the world and just share with people the stories that we have about how God's acting in our life. We can invite them to things like carols on Clanville, all the different Christmas services, all the, uh, all the kids' church events. We can actually go out there and say, oh, come to this. Enjoy life with a bunch of people in this area and hear the truth, the real truth about Christmas and about Jesus at Christmas time. We can do that with confidence because we have accounts like this. All right. Well, so God works in history. But also God works in his own special way. Now, that is a ham and cheese sandwich. I was, info- I was informed at 8 a.m. That, that you can also call it a coque monsieur if you are French. <laughs> and if you put an egg on it, it's actually called a coque madame. But there you go. That's what I learned today. And I'll explain the sandwich later on. Now, we're going to see that God works in his own way, and it's usually not in a human way. And there's a lot of text here. So I'll just let me encourage you to sort of keep one eye on your Bibles and one eye on me and just recall what Bruce has read to us uh, recently as we work our way through this. First thing that we see is that the Christmas is actually coming in this part of the Bible. And before it comes, God uses a guy, John the Baptist, to herald Jesus' birth in. And later on, Jesus will start his ministry and God will also use the same guy, John the Baptist, to herald his ministry. But because Luke has done this, we're going to do this as well. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning to see the the time and the circumstances for when this great man, John the Baptist, was born. Now, John the Baptist was born to a guy called Zechariah. Now, I know it sounds really biblical and, oh, what a cool biblical name. It means God remembers. But Zechariah, if we were to pick somebody to give birth to this great guy, John the Baptist, who would we pick? Well, I think I would pick somebody who was really, really theologically educated, you know, a high-ranking clergyman. At 8 a.m., we had Peter Watson. He was an ex-archbishop. We would pick someone like him. Uh, we would pick someone who was um, really in tune with God, knows what to expect from God, lives his life walking with God. We would pick someone who's, who just trusts God. If God speaks, they listen, they obey, they remember. We'd pick a guy like that. But look at who God picks. God picks a guy called Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest, and we think that's pretty good, he's a priest, but there's thousands of priests. There's a whole tribe of Israel full of priests, and he wasn't a particularly high-ranking priest. We don't know exactly, but he certainly wasn't a high priest. He was just sort of there. And so it's a regular croque monsieur or a ham and cheese sandwich kind of priest. Right? And not only that, he was married to Elizabeth, and they were old, and they were barren. They had no children. Now, to, that, to us, that doesn't mean anything, because we know some of our friends are old and don't have children. That's just the way life is sometimes. But back in those days, if you were old and you were barren, a lot of people looked down on you. There was a stigma attached to it back in those days. 
Because some people would say that it was because you've done some really bad sin and God's punishing you. And certainly, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have felt a lot of that. And so in the public eye, they would have been a bit below average. Of course, it's not true because we read that Zechariah and Elizabeth both were very godly people who obeyed God. So that certainly wasn't a curse by God. It just didn't happen. But But their society would look down on them. And also, for Zechariah to receive this message about about him giving birth to a son, John the Baptist, he would have to be in the temple at a certain time. Now, how did, how did Zechariah qualify to get in there? Well, it just so happened that he was on the roster. His division, Abijah's division, was just on. You know, there's an Excel spreadsheet somewhere, a Google Doc, and it's just, bam, Abijah, and Zechariah was there. You're rostered on, guys. You're in. Okay. And then, to get into the temple himself to do the incense, what, what qualified him for that? Well, they drew his name out of it. He got casted lots. He drew his name out of a hat. They rolled a dice. Okay, son, you're in. Go. And so nothing really qualified him to be in there to receive the word. I think of him as the Stephen Bradbury of, uh, of, of priests, right? You know, Stephen Bradbury, he's the Australian skater. He was coming last the whole time, and suddenly everyone in front of him fell down, and whoosh, he was in. He won. And kind of like Zechariah, you know, you're on the Excel, you drew a name out of a hat, and you're in. He's just got in there. And when he was in there, you'd think, wow, this guy's in there. He, and he, he's, he gets an angel. And you think, you know, any godly priest would say, oh my goodness, wow, angel, fantastic. You're speaking to me. It's great. But how does he react? He's like, oh, I'm scared. So scared. Now, for us, when we read this, we think, yeah, of course. If you saw an angel, you'd be pretty scared. Uh, and, and that's kind of understandable. But having said that, if you were going into the temple of God, serving in the place where they do the incense, you would probably think, if God's going to speak from anywhere, it's going to be here. You'd be sort of expecting it if you had your wits about you. And certainly that was the expectation of the people outside. Because when he went outside again at the end, everyone said, or saw that he couldn't speak, and they said, ah, he must, have seen a, he must have seen a vision. See, everyone else knew that this is kind of where you see God. But he was shocked. He wasn't really aligned with God that much. And also when the angel actually says, I'm going to give you a son, John the Baptist, you would think he'd say, oh, Thank you, angel. Praise God. Um, I'm going to have a son. But no, his reaction is, what? I'm old, and my wife is old. How can we have a son? This guy clearly didn't remember his Old Testament. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son when they are old. God gave Hannah a son, Samuel, when she was old. He clearly forgot what God did in the past, and so his, his reaction was one of doubt and not thankfulness and not faith. Now, I know when we read this, we think, yeah, that kind of makes sense because you're an old guy. You probably wouldn't expect to have a child. But that's not what the angel thought. The angel thought, you should have just believed me. But because you didn't believe me, you're not going to speak until your son is actually born. You see, Zechariah wasn't really trusting of God, wasn't really expecting God to speak, and he was just a sort of ham and and, uh, cheese kind of priest. And yet God used him to bring about the herald of his son coming. A great task performed by a very ordinary kind of fellow. And God does that a lot in the Bible, partly because he wants everyone to see that when his plans succeed, it's not the human person who made it happen. It's him. He uses average Joe, Zechariah, to achieve his great things. It's never going to be that Zechariah somehow got fertile when he was old. It's always going to be God's action. Now, that's true of Zechariah, and it's also true of us as well. 
You see, I know some of us are sitting there thinking, wow, you know, Christmas time, there's a lot going on, and we've got so many activities at church, and there's so many things going on at my school and my social clubs and my offices, and there's a lot going on, and, you know, I know people need to hear about Jesus, but I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm just average Christian. I just go to church on a Sunday. I'm not particularly well-versed in the Bible. I don't, I'm not a very good communicator. I'm just, just regular Joe. God won't use me. Uh, he'll use those other people. He'll use those, those people, um, those mega pastors of mega churches, or he'll use uh, guys with pointy hats you know, in cathedrals, but that's not for me. And if that's how you're feeling today, well, look at Zechariah. God is so powerful, he's so good, he can use anyone, even Zechariah, even you, even me. All we need to do is be faithful and obedient and see what God does. God did a great work through Zechariah, and he can, and he most likely will do the same work through us. Now, that was Zechariah. Let's have a look at John the Baptist, because we're told here in the, the passage that he'll give birth to a guy called John the Baptist, and John the Baptist will be a great man. He is going to have no um, alcohol in his life, and that's because he's probably going to be aligned with a group of special, um, special people called Nazarites, but he's going to turn the people's... Um, Families back together, fathers to children, children to parents. He's going to call Israel back to God himself. He will be a guy who is like Elijah. Now, when we hear that name, we think, oh, Elijah, I remember that from some time ago. Well, let's just uh, spend a couple of seconds going back to the Old Testament. There was a guy called Elijah, and he was actually very bold, and he, he spoke to the king of Israel saying, you know, you need to turn back to God. You've forgotten God. And he spoke to the people of Israel. You've turned your back on God. You've worshipped foreign gods. You need to turn back to God because the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, he'll judge the world. He'll save his people. That's what Elijah said about a thousand years before this. And it was rumored, it was prophesied, that before the Messiah comes, there'll be another guy who'll be just like Elijah, who will approach the king and say, you need to turn back to God, who will approach the people of Israel and say, you need to turn back to God because the Messiah is here. And this guy is John the Baptist. He would be the long-expected-for guy like Elijah, calling people to turn back to God. He's a great man in history. In fact, he would be the GOAT. Greatest of all time. Come on, sports fans. <laughs> all right. Um, you know, we have, we have uh, Venus, uh, Serena Williams. We have um, uh, Roger Federer. We can have... Who Think of your, your uh, most loved sports person, they're called the goat, right? The greatest of all time. And John the Baptist is called the goat, not by us, right? but by Jesus himself. See, later on in Luke chapter 7, Jesus will say, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Wow, that's high praise, especially when it's coming from Jesus. Now, what makes John the Baptist the goat? I mean, can he really beat out Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and all those big guns from the Old Testament, what makes him any better than them? Well, the answer is quite simple. You see, those guys back in the Old Testament, they said, the Messiah is coming. Go follow him. He'll judge the world. He'll save you from your sins. Go. And it was a bit vague. When is he coming? What's it going to be like? We've got some hints, but it's vague. But scroll forward to John the Baptist's time, John the Baptist does the same thing as these guys. The Messiah is coming. He's going to save the world. He's going to judge the world. And now look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He's here now. Follow him. 
he's greater than all of them because he can point to Jesus most clearly, more clearly than anyone in the past. That's why he's the greatest. But the next part of this verse is going to blow you away. It says here, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, you, me, we're nobodies, but we're greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? How can we be greater than the goat? Well, it's because John the Baptist was pointing people forward to Jesus. He's here. Go and follow him. He's going to save you. He's going to judge you. But then he got arrested and he got executed. He gave really good clarity, but not complete clarity. But for us, just regular Christians, 2,000 years later, Jesus isn't in our future. The Christ event isn't in our future. It's in our past. And now we have even more clarity than John the Baptist about Jesus. We can tell people exactly how Jesus would live, what he would teach, how he would die, how he'd rise again. We can point people to Jesus with a greater clarity than even John the Baptist himself. And that's why we are greater than him in terms of pointing people to God. Now, that's a great encouragement, and it's also a great weight on us, isn't it? Because Jesus says, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. If you know me, if you've received a report like Luke that gives you certainty of what you've been taught, you can point to me. You're greater than even John the Baptist. But it also means, you know what, we can go out there in confidence, but there's a, bit of, there's a heavy responsibility for us to do it as well. Because we can do it better than John the Baptist, and he was doing it. So why not us? And I know that scares a lot of us, and I know it's very tricky, but it doesn't have to be big. You don't have to stand on a stage to do it. You can just do it in average conversations. You can just invite people to things. You just need to be thinking about how to point people clearly to Jesus all the time. Whether it's your friends and family members at work and home, whether it's your kids, your grandkids, your mums, your dads, we have this joy, this privilege, and also this heavy responsibility of pointing people to Jesus clearly. And especially at Christmas time, what a great time to do it. So be encouraged and feel the weight, I guess, of that responsibility as well. Okay, and last thing quickly, God actually works for the joy of his people. We'll see this in verses 23 through to 25. It says this. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In those days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. See, God did choose to use Zechariah and Elizabeth to bring about John the Baptist, who would then herald in Jesus. But he did it also for their joy. You know, she said, you've taken away my shame. I, I had the stigma of people thinking that I was somehow cursed by God because I, was, I wasn't able to conceive. But now you've taken away that shame. And she's thankful, she's joyful, and so is Zechariah. But it's not just for their joy. Earlier on in the passage, we're told that when John the Baptist comes and calls people back to Jesus, many in Israel would rejoice as well. And indeed, a lot of, all of the first century Christians, all of the first Christians were actually Jewish people who had realized that they had turned their back on God and now they were going to return to God through Jesus. But it's not just for the Jewish people, the many around that time. It's actually for the whole world. Because later on when Jesus is born, the angels will appear again and they will say glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to men 
on whom his favor rests. They'll say, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus' coming is for the joy of all of us. Now, I know in the next couple of weeks, the next three weeks or so, things are going to be very, very busy. School's wrapping up, office parties are going on, grandkids are coming off um, into vacation and sometimes to your house. Um, There'll be a lot of shopping, a lot of cooking. There'll be a whole bunch of things to do. And at church, there'll be a lot of moving chairs around, inviting people to things. There'll be a lot of things going on. But in the midst of all this, let me encourage you to stop for a moment and just remember, why are we doing this stuff? It's because God works for the joy of his people. He sent John the Baptist to usher in Jesus to bring joy to the world. And let's be doing all of these things with great joy. And also let's be remembering those people who are not experiencing this joy and especially bring the joy of Jesus to them as well and to look out for them and care for them as well. Well, we've seen a lot of things today, haven't we? We've seen that God works in history. We can believe it. We can trust it. We've seen that God works in his own ways. He can use anyone, even Zechariah, even us. And he can use us to tell people with absolute clarity who he is. And lastly, he does it for our joy. So let's rejoice that God is that good to us. And let's rejoice that Christmas is here. And 2,000 years ago, John the Baptist did usher in Jesus, who'd be the joy of the world. Amen.